Amen. All God's people said. Amen. Amen. If you would, join me in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. We'll read verses 12 through 14 today. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I'm writing you to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning... I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Father, I pray today that we would humble ourselves before your word that we'd be good students of your word, we'd be good disciples in that we not only learn, but that we put into practice what we've learned today from your word and that we teach others as well. Pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit would say. I pray that all of us would devote ourselves over the next half hour or so to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a famous uh, story uh, known as Goodwill Hunting, and a story about uh, a guy named Will who was uh, played by Matt Damon, and he was a janitor at MIT. And he was uh, Einstein smart. He was a genius. He's brilliant. Uh, But he had a bad upbringing, abusive upbringing, and so he had uh, significant psychological issues and emotional issues, anger problems as well. Um, he's at MIT, and in this math class, the professor put this, uh, you know, this long problem, one of those problems that takes up the entire board, and challenges his students over the course of the semester uh, to see who can solve the problem. And this is you know, as time goes on, uh, you know, the students are looking at it. They're not really uh, had a lot in common with them. They, they didn't know how to solve it. And uh, so, uh, but uh, he, to his t- surprise, he returns uh, one day and, and it's solved. Um, and they can't figure out who did it. Uh, so he put another problem on the board. And, and sure enough, he finds that that one is solved as well. And over time, he figures out that it's the janitor a guy named Will who has solved it. The only problem is uh, Will uh, gets arrested, and so he goes to jail. And uh, while uh, he's in jail, this professor comes, and he says, hey, I'm, I'm going to help you out, and, uh, and we're going to work together, but you have to get counseling in order to get out of jail. And that's part of the agreement for me working with you is that uh, you go to counseling. Well, uh, so he goes to counseling. The only problem was he know, knew more about psychology than the psychologists who were trying to counsel him. And uh, so as they're trying to counsel him and analyze him, he's analyzing the, the psychologist, and he's, uh, you know, talking to them about their own childhood and their own emotional problems. And so they kept getting angry with him and kicking him out until finally uh, the professor goes back to an old friend named Sean, played by Robin Williams. Well, uh, like some of the others, they had a rocky start, but eventually they uh, connected Both had tough upbringings and lived uh, tough lives. And after Sean had uh, slowly earned Will's trust, they finally had a breakthrough moment. 
they're talking to one another and they're recounting their uh, abusive childhood. Both of them were abused by uh, their fathers. And so they're both kind of uh, sharing and swapping uh, stories. And uh, Sean is looking at, uh, at Will's file. And just out of the blue, he, he looks at Will and he says, Hey, Will, this is not your fault. It's not your fault. He says, yeah, yeah, I know. I got it. He takes a step towards him and he looks at him again. He says, hey, Will, it's not your fault. And he kept repeating it over and over and over as he walks closer and closer without breaking eye contact until finally Will breaks down. First he gets angry because that's kind of his go-to emotion, but then he breaks down sobbing and weeping. The reality is he knew intellectually, perhaps it wasn't his fault, but it just hadn't taken root in his heart that the things that he went through as a child were not his fault. As we go through 1 John, we come to a place where the Apostle John repeats the same thing at least twice. He begins to, uh, as we go through John, we come to a place where uh, he kind of breaks his rhythm. Scholars uh, have been, quite frankly, stumped uh, by what he does in these passages because he seems to get out of rhythm. He seems to take a, a trail away from what he was talking about. The train of thought stalls, and he starts repeating himself. And after studying this, I, I think he's doing exactly the same thing that Sean was doing in Goodwill Hunting to Will. He's repeating something that we might know that his audience knows intellectually. They know they're forgiven. They know who the Father is. They know that they are victorious and have overcome the evil one. They knew that intellectually, but they needed it to take root in their hearts because when people start departing, who are uh, your loved ones, who are your friends, and, and there's this difficult uh, situation going on, this crisis going on in the church, uh, you need something beyond just an intellectual knowledge of what the truth is. You need to know it within your heart. And so sometimes in the Bible, we find repetition trying to drive a point home. Turn over with me. We're not going to read it. I just want you to look at it. Um, I want you to kind of just analyze it for yourself. Psalm 136. Uh, just kind of look at it while I'm talking. If you go to Psalm 136, you see he repeats the same thing over and over and over again. I'll just read the first three verses. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. I count uh, roughly 26 times that he repeats, his love endures forever. I have a belief when it comes to songs that we sing that it's good to have a balance. There's some songs that we need to sing that stretch our minds, that as we sing them, there's not perhaps a lot of repetition, uh, but it stretches our minds theologically, what we believe. Maybe we even have to go look up a word or a phrase to understand what exactly is the author saying here. There are times where I've sung songs for a long time in my life, and then one day as I'm reading, as I'm paying attention, finally it clicks. Aha, that's what's going on here, and it makes sense. We need songs like that. And then every now and then we need a song that just lands on a point. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. Because we need it to move down from our minds into our hearts. 
Revelation 4.8 says, The creatures around the throne day and night say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Teacher, uh, excuse me, Jesus, the master, rabbi, and teacher, was constantly repeating himself. It's just a good uh, uh, strategy for teachers to repeat yourself. And teachers are like, amen, because we have to do that all the time, right? Uh, It's good to repeat yourself. Jesus used that a lot. Have you ever noticed we have four Gospels? A Gospel is a biography of Jesus, uh, just tells the story of Jesus. You have Mark, uh, many scholars believe, was written first, uh, the Gospel of Mark. And if you read Matthew and Luke, you see that a lot of uh, the stories they tell about Jesus are verbatim, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, where they're just verbatim in what they say, how they tell the story. And then, of course, years later, John wrote his gospel, repeats many of the same stories. Paul said to the church in Corinth, I want to remind you of the gospel. Paul, we already know the gospel. We don't need to be reminded of the gospel. Can can we just graduate and move beyond the gospel because we already know the gospel? You may know it intellectually, but we need to be reminded on a regular basis that Jesus died on the cross for our sins that he bore our griefs and our sorrows, he was buried in a borrowed tomb, and that God victoriously raised his beloved son from the grave. And this is our victory, this is our hope, this is our rallying cry, this is our message. We need to be reminded of the gospel. And now as we go through 1 John, he's come to a place where he's going to say the same thing over and over. Verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you dear children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. A lot of that language is repetitive. Today we're going to talk about three reminders for us all, three things that we need to be reminded of, three reminders, uh, things that kind of like Will, he need to hear, hey, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, it's not your fault. We need to hear these lines uh, that we're going to look at today. And reminder number one, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. He says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of of his name. Before we dive in, I think it's worth just asking if John intends this uh, to be something just to fathers and young men, or if this is for everybody. Um, uh, there is an age-old debate about translations, whether they should be word for word or thought for thought, and which kind of Bible should you use. And I'm a firm believer that the answer to that question is yes, you should have all the Bibles, okay? If you walk into my study, I've got a bunch of them. I respect uh, the translations that we have today and that we've had in the past. Uh, They are blessings from God. Many men and women have spilt blood uh, to get you the Bible that you hold in your hand to where you're not just dependent upon me telling you what the Bible says, uh, where it's in a different language and someone knows that language and they read it in that language and then they say, okay, here's what it means. Uh, That happened for a long time. It was... So controversial when the Bible was translated into English. People died at the stake, burned at the stake, just so you could have the Bible that you hold in your hands. 
And the thing is, uh, they differ in translations. And the beautiful thing is, unless you are fluent in Greek, unless you're fluent in Greek, it's helpful to look at various translations as you study the Bible because you can see where they differ and you can see where the points of contention are. But here's what we know about John at this point. It says he's writing to you, dear children, to fathers and to young men. Generically speaking, he's writing, of course, to the congregation. Dear children, that's only used in his book to refer to the congregation as a whole. So he's drawing out fathers and young men as examples, but something beneficial for all of us. So what does he want to say to everyone? He wants to say that your sins have been forgiven because of his name, on account of the name of Jesus. In other words, because of who Jesus is, And because of what Jesus has done, you are forgiven. Something that we should not question, something that we should not doubt, something that we should rest in, brothers and sisters, to know that you are forgiven, that your debt is canceled, that the stain of sin has been removed because of who Jesus is and because of what he did on the cross, dying in our place and for our sins. And I feel like, We need to hear this very much like Will needed to hear it's not your fault. We need to hear you are forgiven. To be reminded of God's grace, that it's sufficient, that it's more powerful than your sin. It's more expansive. When the Bible wants to talk about God's wealth, it says that God is rich in mercy and grace and love. When you think about the wealth of God, what do you think of? We think of streets of gold. We think of pearly gates. We think of the glass crystal sea. We think of all the glory and treasures of heaven. But when the Bible speaks of the wealth of God, it speaks of His grace and it speaks of His mercy that God is rich in mercy. We need to hear the same words that the adulterous woman heard. We'll turn there at some point where Everybody was ready to cast stones at her and kill her for her adultery. And Jesus said, has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Can you imagine that moment when you think you are about to die because of something you did wrong? Your life is threatened. You are about to to breathe your last breath in a very brutal, violent way and to hear the thud of those rocks being dropped and then to hear the voice of Jesus. Who is there to condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We need to be reminded of what Paul said in Romans 8, 31 and following, that if God be for us, who can be against us? that we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ and nothing can separate us from the love of God. I want to invite you to turn over to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We need to understand this from another angle as well. A lot of us, we know this intellectually, but a lot of us, uh, we tend to function differently than what we believe. It's one thing to say that you believe something. Like a lot of you believe today you should go home and eat chicken and broccoli and drink a thing of water. But truth be told, you're going to have some fried chicken, okay? And you're going to have some gravy uh, on top of some mashed potatoes. And you're going to have fries. And you're going to have all kinds of things. Um, And so you may know intellectually one thing, but just that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to live it out, right? 
Um, we know intellectually that we are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of us in this room would affirm that theological statement. Uh, but a lot of us function as if uh, that's not the case because we carry a load of regret and guilt. We're weighed down by past failures and our shortcomings rather than resting in the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 7, verse 36 and following, we read one of the most powerful, uh, just... Um, uh, convicting stories in the Bible. It says in Luke 7, 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now let's just stop there for a moment and recognize the fact Jesus is being invited to a Pharisee's house. He's in town. Uh, he's kind of the hot speaker in town. People wanted uh, Jesus to be in their home. They uh, wanted to be in proximity to this uh, person who had taken on kind of celebrity status in, in those early days of his ministry and so invited Jesus uh, to have dinner uh, with him at his house. It would have been customary when you invite someone to your house to have uh, servants or someone who is on the lower part of the social uh, totem pole to, to come and to wash your feet and to show and offer hospitality. As we're going to see, the Pharisee did not do that uh, for Jesus. Uh, and so we come to verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the, house, at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood beside him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. A couple of thoughts before we move on. First, he's saying this to himself. He's saying this to himself, okay? Uh, have you ever been thinking something and then someone uh, could tell what you were thinking and they responded to your thoughts? Okay. Uh, for me, it's called marriage. Okay. My wife is normally, uh, Sarah's normally about three steps ahead of me of what I'm about to think and she goes ahead and gets there sometimes. But, uh, but uh, the, the truth is, uh, he's just thinking to himself at this point. Uh, and Jesus knowing all things, Jesus being omniscient, uh, knows what he's thinking to himself and probably what a lot of people are thinking. Why would he let this sinful woman touch him if he was who everybody thought he was, this prophet? Surely he would never allow this woman uh, to get close to him. Look at how Jesus responds. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. He Owed one, he, one owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wept my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, her, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. 
Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here's a woman who understood the love of God. She understood forgiveness. Those who are forgiven little, loves little. I can tell you, I grew up in church. Uh, My grandfather was a charter member of a church in the town I grew up in. My grandmother served in the nursery. And one of the godliest women you would ever uh, come in contact with, I grew up going to church. I was there every time the doors were open. Sometimes we'd show up and the doors wouldn't be open. We'd stand there and wait for them to be open so that we could go in. And so I grew up in a very religious uh, culture, uh, very church-oriented. My family was. I was blessed in that way to have a a mom and a dad who brought me to church and taught me the way of the Lord. Uh, But I can tell you, I had to come to a point in my life where I recognized I am a sinner. I'm in need of God's grace. Just as much as this woman, just as much as she needed God's forgiveness and grace, I need God's forgiveness and grace. And what John is saying to this church, you are forgiven. The thing that you need so much, so desperately, you are forgiven. Because the thing is, the Bible tells, notice how it talks about we are forgiven on account of his name. What does that mean? A name is identified with a person. We pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Why? Because we're praying to God's name is identified with the person, with God, the Father. And we are to hallow that name. That means we're to have a reverence, a respect for the name of God. This past week, I got to go to uh, the Arlington Cemetery and uh, to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And so we get there, and, and it's uh, pretty warm. People are sweating, but the crowd is uh, coming in and, and kind of filling up the place. And, and there is this uh, guard who's uh, going back and forth uh, on guard, guarding the, the tomb of the unknown soldier. And you can see uh, her, and for many years, uh, been go- doing that route. And so uh, you can see on the ground where they're, it's stained, where they walk. And very moving, very uh, touching moment, but... But we're there, and uh, we're watching, and you know when a big crowd gets together, sometimes there's just a little bit of muttering, okay? A little, little, little uh, hum uh, began to rise in the crowd as people began to file in, and, uh, and the guard, she's going back and forth, and uh, I could see not our group, uh, but another group down front, they'd kind of piled in, and, and you could kind of see some of the younger ones, they, they were having a little bit of a conversation, and I was watching her, she's going back and forth, and all of a sudden she diverged from her path. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I wonder what she's about. And before I could even get the thought through my brain, she stood toe-to-toe with this guy and said, you will keep silence and respect at all times. And for about 10 seconds, she just let that sit, staring at him. And, you know, I didn't move a muscle. (laughs) Nobody moved a muscle. There was a hush that came across the crowd. And then finally, she went back to her, uh, to her normal routine. But, but I can tell you not a word was spoken after that point until the laying on of the wreath. The reality is uh, that was a sacred site, and it deserved a certain kind of respect. A quiet dignity is uh, what it said on some signs. 
When we think about the name of God, the reality is we are supposed to hallow the name of God, but the reality is we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And we weren't just muttering in the crowd. We said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Those are the words that we repeated. Crucify him. And Jesus went and he died on the cross and he bore our grief on the cross so that John could write these words, dear children, you are forgiven. On account of his name, the name that you are supposed to hallow, you are forgiven. Reminder number two. You know the Father. And probably more accurately to say you know the true God. He says in verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He says again in verse 14, I'm writing to you dear children because you know the Father. So it's accurate to say you know the Father. uh, But I believe he has uh, the triune God in mind as he's writing this. You know him, as he says, who is from the beginning. And as we go back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And as we talked about, he's talking about the word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I believe he's talking about the Father and the Son. I think it would be fine to think of the, uh, the, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And John is assuring them that they know God because they know the Son of God. These veterans in the faith, these fathers, needed to return back to the beginning. They needed to be reminded of their first love, that, they are li- that what they are living for is true and real because for all of us, those who have been in church for a period of time, there's always this temptation, this pull to drift, to drift, to wander away from the heart of our faith, to leave and forsake our first love, to uh, fall into mediocrity or to lukewarmness. We all have that tendency to do so. The longer you're in the faith, uh, the more you will have to deal with that. And so, John is writing to them saying, you know him who is from the beginning. Remember, there are those who had left this church who claim to have a secret elite knowledge of God. I believe, uh, as many scholars would say, their beliefs developed over time into full-blown Gnosticism where they claim to have this secret elite knowledge of God, of the true God that others did not possess. They were the ones in their minds who really knew God. Um, have you ever met someone that just that they just kind of gave the indication that they had real insider knowledge of God? Um, and I think that's uh, basically what they were doing. He talks about knowing God throughout this book. Um, discipleship, though, is not just about knowing things. Okay, we talked about this in our disciple to disciple uh, class. That disciple, real discipleship is about learning, doing. And teaching others. That, that's full-blown discipleship. You, you learn, you do, and you teach. And I feel like a lot of times we're real good about one out of three of those. And, you know, one out of three ain't bad in baseball, right? Right? I mean, if you hit one for three, uh, then that, that's okay in baseball. But the reality is in discipleship, 
We don't need to just gather in this room and learn and be consumers of knowledge. There are plenty of people. The Pharisees were consumers of knowledge, which is why Jesus said, hey, listen to what they say, but pay no attention to their practice because what they're saying is oftentimes good and helpful, but their practice is separate, is inconsistent with what they are teaching. A true disciple of Christ is someone who learns, they grow in knowledge, that they are students of the word, they're loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, but they're also someone who takes that and then they get an action plan. Uh, they, they, uh, they might be not just taking notes of the sermon, but okay, here's what I need to start doing today. Here's what needs to take place this week to live in conformity to the Word of God. And then they take that, and maybe they don't stand behind a pulpit as I do or even teach a, a life group, but they take that and they impart that knowledge to others. And it's a learning, growing, obedience-based community where we are constantly teaching one another and being conformed into the image of Christ. But he reminds them, you know the Father. Don't, don't be led astray by those outside of Christ who claim to have special knowledge of God. We're not all on this mountain just working our way up to some nebulous God in the sky. Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the starting point. Inevitably in life, we begin to ask the big questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? What is true? What should I do with my life? We ask these big questions in life, and there might be a number of different answers to some of these, but the bottom line is you have to start with Jesus. If you get a map and you want to go somewhere, it's important to know the destination, but in order for you to get there, you've got to know where to start. You've got to know where you are. Where, where's the starting point? Um, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the starting point. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. He is a starting point, and if you know Jesus, you know God. If you do not know Jesus, and this is, he, he belabors this point throughout his letter. If you do not know Jesus, you do not know God. Whatever you think about your behavior, whatever you think about your mindset, if you're not one who is following Jesus, who loves Jesus, who's committed to confessing that he is Lord, that he is Christ, and that uh, weighs on the way that you live your life, Unless that kind of allegiance is true of you, then you do not truly know God. Reminder number three, you have overcome. You have overcome, you have overcome, you have overcome. He writes to young men. He says, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. He says again in the next section, I write to you young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. So he, now he has a word for young men. He has a word for those especially who might be young in the faith and he's reminding them of their strength in the Lord that the word of God abides in them and they have overcome. He, he knows his congregation. He obviously uh, has an affection for them to call them dear children as he does. But he's reminding them of truth so that they might not fall into error, into false teaching. Have you ever noticed how sometimes we report to ourselves? We'll be going through the day and we'll talk about, I feel bad. I'm having a bad day. My boss is breathing down my neck. In Texas, we say, it is hot. Okay, we all turn into weather reporters 
here in Texas. It is hot. We, we like to state the obvious, don't we? We like to uh, report to ourselves and to those around us. And quite often, it, we can have a negative bias in the way that we report. And some of us, we've been listening to the news a little bit too much because they, they have a tendency to have a bias towards negative reporting. Uh, they normally don't stand in places where good things are happening, say, reporting live from this wonderful thing that's happened. So a lot of times it's uh, a negative bias that we see in the world and that we a lot of times repeat and mimic in our own lives. But John is countering a worldly propaganda from their detractors who had left. They claimed they didn't need forgiveness because they hadn't sinned. And John says, if you say that you have not sinned, you're a liar. The truth does not abide in you. But then he tells this church, this group of people, you have an advocate with the Father. He is our atoning sacrifice. And listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. You are forgiven, he's saying to them. Not only that, but he also says, you know the true God. They might claim to have a special knowledge of God out there. But listen to me, you know who God is because you know the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he says to those who are young in the faith, particularly young men, you are not weak. You are strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. The truth of God's word abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. We need to be reminded of this because we flip on the news and quite often feels like we're losing. Feels like things are going really badly and, and there's a lot in the world that looks that way. And I'm always reminded of just the despair and the helplessness they must have felt as they looked up and saw Jesus hanging on the cross. I mean, in that moment, it, I mean, that look, the whole point of that is you lose, right? I mean, that's what the Romans wanted to say is your side lost. You think you had the guy. You don't have the guy. We nailed him to a cross just like we do anybody else who claims to be Messiah. And that was kind of the whole point. And so everybody gathered around the cross. They look up. They say, hey, we lost. That's why the disciples were huddled in a room in fear. But we're reminded time after time after time again that when all hope seems lost, God is working. God is moving. So we look around the world and we see violence, we see hatred, we see all kinds of evils in the world that we should fight back against and do all that we can to overcome. But we just need to know at the end of the day that we have won. The victory is over. Christ has won the victory. It's kind of like back, I've told you the story when I was in eighth grade, or ninth grade football and, and uh, I had lost track that the game was even going on. I'm over there on the bench, Bert, Bert, where are you, Bert, Bert? I'm like, okay, coach, where, what have you been? And he started chewing me out because I wasn't paying attention. I'm like, coach, I've been over here for like three hours, okay? Surely nothing so desperate would, would need my attention on the field. But the, he shoots me out, he throws me out on the field. I'm stumbling out there and and I get out there just in enough time to look up and see the quarterback kneel the ball and look up at the clock and see time expire. And guess what? We won. <laughs> Our side won, and I got to share in that victory. I did absolutely nothing, but I celebrated with everybody else, right? Okay? And so as we come to Christ, you know, I think it's Jonathan Edwards that said, you know, the only thing we uh, brought to salvation was the sin that made it necessary. That's what, we, that's what we did. We don't have anything to boast in. Paul himself said, I've got nothing to boast in except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all like the Israelites who are watching David out there defeat Goliath and we share in his victory. Jesus has overcome and you have overcome the evil one 
Why? Because you are in Christ. Let's close by looking at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Um, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. I'm not going to read all of that, uh, but it's all one sentence in uh, the Greek. And so just phenomenal. It's like Paul got started and he just went on this beautiful, holy, sacred rant. Uh, where he just couldn't land the sentence, and praise God he didn't. Uh, In Ephesians 1, verse 3, listen to what it says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Notice this, if you're in the practice of underlining or circling things, in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In other words, what's true of Christ becomes true of you because you are in Christ. You have every spiritual blessing. Why? Because you are in Christ. You are chosen. Why? Because you are in him. In him, in him, in Christ. He repeats it over and over and over. Because you need to know that when you're in Christ, you receive all of those spiritual blessings that he opens with. So now the question is, how, how, how do I get in, in Christ? Is it just uh, something outside of my control? The Bible makes it very clear, I believe, how one gets in Christ. And it's by grace and through faith in Jesus. It says this in Galatians. We're part of Abraham's family. We're in him because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so what I want to say to you today is uh, there, there are those in this room where those three reminders are reminders to you. You need to be reminded because it is true of you that you are forgiven. You do know the one true God, and you have overcome. You are victorious. That's true of you if you are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, it's not true of you. It's not true of those who departed. If they, were, uh, they, they really belonged to them, they would have stayed with them. So maybe this morning you just begin to reflect on your life and you realize you've never received that grace and forgiveness that Christ offers you. I just want us to bow our heads and close our eyes this morning as we wrap up and want to invite you, if you've never trusted in Christ, you've never placed your faith in him, you've never given him your full, wholehearted allegiance, I want you to do that this morning. Gracious Father, thank you for your love and your kindness. Thank you that we can say we are forgiven. That we know the true God. That we have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And so, Father, there might be someone here who doesn't know you. I pray that they would come to know you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. The altar's open. If you want to trust in Christ today, if you want to follow through with baptism, you want to join the church, or you just need to come pray, I just pray that you'll be honest with God this morning. You'll uh, be straightforward with Him and honest with yourself about where you stand before God. And uh, if you need to make a decision today, I invite you to do so. Uh, but let's sing and let's respond at this time. Just as